0: This morning, on Sunday nights, we go through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and we'll look to be finishing the book of Isaiah tonight, chapters 44 through uh, 64 through 66. And uh, we're going to pull a passage out of the um, word this morning here that we'd be looking in the three chapters tonight, something specific that the Lord might have on his heart If you don't have a Bible this morning, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles, and just wave, get their attention, they'll put a Bible in your hand, and it'll be marked to the passage that we're studying this morning for your convenience. Isaiah chapter 66, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me? And where is the place of my rest? For all those things my hand has made, and all those things exist, says the Lord. But on this one I will look, on him who is poor, and of a contrite spirit, and who trembles at my word, he who slays a bull as if he slays a man, he who sacrifices a lamb as if he breaks a dog's neck. He who offers a grain offering as if he offers swine's blood. He who burns incense as if he blesses an idol. Just as they have chosen their own ways and their own soul delights in their abominations, so will I choose their delusions and bring their fears on them. Because when I called, no one answered. And when I spoke, they did not hear. But they did evil in my eyes and chose that in which I do not delight. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your brethren who hated you, who cast you out for my name's sake, said, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy, but they shall be ashamed. The sound of noise from the city, a voice from the temple, the voice of the Lord who fully repays his enemies let's pray together Lord thank you so much for your word as we turn to it we are always in awe of the fact that you have introduced it in your own supernatural and marvelous way into human history thank you for what your word has done in our lives thank you Lord for the hope and the peace that it brings Thank you for the comfort and the sanctifying influence. Thank you most of all for the revelation that it is of you and of your heart, Lord, and of your desires for each one of our lives. We pray that you would freshly fill us with your spirit right now and that you would give us a supernatural ability to hear your voice through your word this morning. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. These final chapters of the book of Isaiah are sad to me. Very, very sad chapters. But it's a sadness, I think, that does something good in us. Good in me, good in you, as a child of God. And so for that reason, I want to examine a little bit of the melancholy of this particular section of the book of Isaiah and certainly these verses that we're looking at this morning. And what saddens me is the way that the children of Judah treated God at this time in their history. They treated him with a disrespect that was just astonishing. One human being would be thought so low of a human being if they treated another human being in the way that the children of Judah were treating God at this time in their history. They forgot that the God of the Bible is not a whimsical notion, not that he is not a religious someone that every decent person ought to believe in, but not obey or take seriously, or merely some significant piece in some systematic theology, or that he cannot see or hear or be adversely affected by the lives of his children. They forgot that he was not only a God, but a father. they forgot that he was not only a father, but a father with a heart, complete with feelings. That he knows what love feels like. He knows what it is to be loved. He knows what it is to be unloved. He knows what it is to feel joy. He knows what it is to feel grief. He knows what it is to feel pity and anger and pleasure. And they forgot that when they sinned mightily against his law and against his commandments, that they weren't sinning against some cold, impersonal law, but that they were sinning mightily against his heart. And they became convinced, contrary to the entire revelation of his word, that what God was supremely interested in was establishing a religion, among his people, rather than to having a personal relationship with them. And that God came up with all of these commandments, devised all of these commandments concerning morality and worship in the temple and sacrifices there in the Old Testament as a mediator of sorts, some mechanical means provided to us by God by which we prove to God and even prove to ourselves that We're not really such a bad person. And thus, the children of Judah began to develop a relationship with the machine, with the commandments, the sacrifices, the temple. And it was just something God had provided them to do once a week in which to prove that they were a little bit better than all of the other people in the world. They weren't quite as great a sinner as all of the other sinners in the world, that they were better than many. But in fact... There was, But the fact that there was an actual living, feeling, personal God involved in all of this was completely lost upon them. A God who longed for their fellowship as the church of Laodicea did and does yet today to Jesus as described in the book of Revelation where Jesus comes to the church that is very much like the children of Jude at this time in Isaiah's history. And uh, marvel of marvels. I mean, you talk about disrespect. It just makes you want to weep, except that that same thing is in us, apart from the Holy Spirit. And Jesus comes to the church of Laodicea and declares, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. He's on the outside trying to get into his own church. Not the center of attention anymore. It's become about church. It's become about a machine. It's become about anything and everything but him. And he's locked out. And he said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. And religion was in high gear in Judah, but the relationship with God was suffering badly. And they're completely oblivious to it in much the same way that I think over time a husband and a wife can be. They begin their relationship head over heels in love with one another. All that it is is about the relationship. They don't have two quarters to rub together. They don't care a bit about it. They don't have health insurance. They don't have a dependable car. They live in some kind of a duplex on the worst part of town. Don't give it the second thought at all. They're in love. They have one another. And over time, the so-called demands of life begin to creep in. And then the quiet recognition that the relationship is now going to need to suffer on some level in order to have all of the material things that we think that we need in life and that we want in life. And ultimately, the marriage becomes one of convenience and it becomes a machine functioning, productive, oh, efficient, absolutely, I wouldn't doubt that one single bit, productive for making a living and raising children and keeping up with all of the demands of modern life until one day both of them or one of them in the marriage wakes up and wonders what in the world happened to love in this marriage where the husband looks at the house, the two cars now, the nice yard, and so forth, the American dream, and he thinks to himself, with all honesty, with all honesty, he thinks to himself, I'd give all of it up in a moment to have her come running to the door to greet me upon coming home from work as she once did. And she thinks I'd give up half of my kingdom to have him once again take me out on a date and on a date that even remotely approached the enthusiasm and the creativity he showed me when we first were in love. And nowhere was this disconnect between religion as opposed to relationship with God greater than in how the Jewish people viewed the temple by and large. And it had virtually displaced God altogether, if not in their minds, then certainly in their hearts. And it was no longer a place to express this sincere, heartfelt worship toward God, but it was a place to say a bunch of religious words and then go through a bunch of religious motions in order to somehow attempt to appease God and to allow them to go on and live their lives precisely how they wanted. And God complained about all of this earlier in the book of Isaiah when He said, In chapter 29, Inasmuch as these people draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the commandment of men. And they just assumed that because their worship occurred at the temple, and the temple was holy, that it must mean that their worship was holy as well. But what was going on at the temple at the time of Isaiah in Judah was pure hypocrisy. It was the wearing of a mask. It was just acting that was going on. People had developed very compartmentalized spiritual lives. There was this spiritual part of their life that they exercised on the Shabbat, on Sabbath, on Saturday at the temple. And then there was the other six days of the week that constituted their secular life. And they separated the two completely. And where they were one kind of person there at the temple, at church, so to speak, and another kind of person throughout the rest of the week, sinful and sin-filled and self-dominated. And they had convinced themselves, sadly enough, and one of the scariest self-deceptions that can occur in a human life, that this was not only okay with them, but somehow this was completely fine with God. After all, what does He do? What does He expect us to be? Let's be real. Let's, let's be practical. Let's be reasonable. I mean, how holy can a person be in this fallen world? And as one person told me when, as I counseled her many years ago from the Bible, declaring, that's the Bible. This is real life. And that's very much the attitude that they had. We can't take the Bible seriously. Nobody can live remotely on that level or or attempt to, seven days a week. The best we can do is go through the motions one day a week. That will appease God and satisfy Him. But God had declared in the Old Testament, in the great Jewish Shema of Deuteronomy chapter 6, and He said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. And not just on Shabbat, but seven days out of the week. And in the New Testament, Paul conveyed much the same thing to the church at Corinth who were in the midst of their own problems. And he said, therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And thus God reminded them that he is not impressed with buildings, not even with buildings used in the worship of him. If the worship that occurs in those buildings is insincere or hypocritical, and what is true of a temple is certainly true of a church, this wonderful building that God has provided to us and that we sit in the middle of now and this wonderful church grounds that we possess is a wonderful building because it's a place that God has given us to set aside for the worship of him and assembling together as the saints that's what makes it special to him not the building but you and the relationship with god that you and i bring into this building and that we express to him and the worship that we convey to him that's what makes it special to him not the building the entire building was built out of what God created to begin with and what belongs to Him to begin with. All of the concrete, all of the steel, all of the copper and the electrical wires, all of the sheetrock, it was all first natural resources, raw materials that we took and borrowed from what God made in His creation and then turned it into this, but it was always His to begin with. And if we gathered here week by week to offer him this building, we would be offering him something that only already belonged to him long before it was ever built. Now, what makes a building special in the heart of God is that he is worshipped in that building, in spirit and in truth. Worship offered from obedient lives and offered by people. Who are not one thing in church one day out of the week and then something else entirely the rest of the week. And now when the Lord declares heaven is my throne and the earth my footstool, where is the house that you will build me and where is the place of my rest? He's declaring his omnipresence. The fact that God lives everywhere all at once. There is not a nook, not a cranny, not a place, not only in this world but in the entire universe, not a bedroom, not a closet, not a kitchen, not a corporate boardroom, not the White House, not anywhere in the whole world that he is not absolutely present in all of his fullness. And thus, that no single building can contain him. It can't contain the fullness of his presence. No single building can be constitute his resting place. And no one place, no one location or building can claim an exclusive right to his presence. And of course, all of that is true as God declares it. But at the same time, the Bible also declares that in a special way, like no other place in the world, The temple did represent the presence of God, and it was to represent a place of rest for him. King David spoke of it as such when he publicly instructed his son Solomon to build the temple. And he declared, Hear me, my brethren and my people. I had it in my heart to build a house of rest for the ark of the covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God, and had made preparations to build it. And the Ark of the Covenant that sat within the Holy of Holies of the temple represented the presence of God. And that presence was to find its rest in the temple. And I think it's an interesting thought, really, that the temple was to be a place that represented God's presence. It was to be a place of rest for him. And we think to ourselves as we consider the place of God's rest in this world. Where in the world can God find rest in this world? The world itself is not a place of rest for him. Filled with sin and filled with rebellion against him and his word and his authority. The heavens themselves are not a place of rest for him at the moment, being also occupied, as the Bible teaches us, by the prince of the power of the air, filled with spiritual hosts of wickedness, as Paul wrote to the Ephesians in the heavenly places. But the temple was to be a place of rest for God, the one place in all of the world where he could be wholly loved and worshipped and obeyed and reverenced and honored, a place of Sweet and simple and pure uncomplicated fellowship with his people and now at the time of the history of Judah all of that has been spoiled all of it has been marred for God not just the people but for God and all of it has been marred by hypocrisy so sad for them but so sad for God as well And where then, we ask ourselves, can God find the sweetness of the rest that he is looking for in this fallen world? Where is that place of rest for him? And he tells us there in verse 2, the latter part of it, where he declared, but on this one I will look on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. He finds rest. He finds a place of peace. He finds a heart that he can make himself at home in, in the heart of one who is poor. And this doesn't speak of physical poverty, but of one who is poor in spirit. The word poor literally means without property. Poor, wretched, needy. And in need, uh, and, and 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 it's speaking of being poor and needy and wretched and without property in and of myself, spiritually speaking. And here, this describes the consciousness within a Christian or a child of God, where we recognize that I don't deserve the smallest slice of the vastness and the richness of this Christian life, where there is that realization in our heart, whether we've walked with the Lord for 48 hours, or we've walked with the Lord for 48 years. I don't deserve... It's forgiveness. I don't deserve its heaven. I don't deserve its joy. I don't deserve its peace. I don't deserve its hope. And far from that leading me into a life of gloom and a life of melancholy, it translates into a humility that is attractive both to man and to God. And it translates into a gratitude that must express itself to God in praise, in prayer, in worship and in thanksgiving, and as a result, it makes my heart a home that God can rest in, that allows Him to bless with the greatest blessing that our heart can know, and that is the sense of His pleasure and the sense of the fullness of His presence. To be a poor in spirit is simply to be humble rather than to be proud. Humbled by the most humbling thing of all in the world, humbled by the grace of God, humbled by the goodness of God in my life, the love of God. And it's said of humility that it has two ingredients, honesty and a good memory. And that's the truth. The cure for pride in any of our lives, I don't care who we are, if any of us needs a resurrection of humility in our life, all we need to do is think for a moment. Don't brood upon it any longer than is necessary for it to do its needed work. But all that's required to produce humility in any of our lives think is to think back on the one, two, three of the greatest and most embarrassing failures in our life, the one, two greatest sins that constitute our past and will immediately be clothed instantly with humility and we'll find ourselves treating people with a humility that wasn't present but even a moment before. And so God's able to find a place of rest in the heart of the humble. But he goes on and he says, He finds that place of rest in the heart of one who possesses a contrite spirit. And the word contrite means to be broken down. It literally means to be crippled. And the idea, again, is as a result of sin. In other words, this kind of person experiences a quick conviction in their life concerning sin... They can't remain in sin any length of time. Not for days and weeks and months and years on end as was happening with the children of Israel at the time of Isaiah. This kind of a person, one who is of a contrite spirit, is one who is quick to repent. And the Bible teaches that our brokenness, this contrite spirit, our brokenness is directly proportional to the time that elapses between the moment that we sin and then the moment that we become conscious of it and then repent of it, confess it to God and ask Him for His forgiveness. And when that contriteness and when that season or that that span of time between the time that we sin and the consciousness of our sin and the damage that it's done to us and to others and our relationship with God, when that is short in a human life, that is a life that is broken. And when that season is long, that gap of time is long in another person's life, then it represents the utter absence of brokenness in that life. The heart that God can rest in is one in which that process happens quickly. There's no willful, deliberate, ongoing practice of sin wherein God's conviction is repeatedly disregarded and resulting then in the grieving of the Holy Spirit. And the third characteristic he gives of this heart in which he can find rest is it is a heart that, is, that trembles at his word And this speaks of the person who hasn't lost their awe concerning God's word. And what it describes here is more than someone who is a polite listener to God's word. This is more than knowing God's word. This is more than even obeying God's word. Because it's possible to obey God's word under all manner of motivation and all (laughs) manner of reasons, not all of them spiritual I can obey God's Word in the hopes that people will think of me as deeply spiritual. I have no concern at all for God's reputation or what they think of Him. It's all about me. That's how dirty my heart can be. I can obey God's Word out of guilt. I can obey God's Word out of self-righteousness in order to try and make God indebted to me, to try and convince Him that He owes me something as a result of it. I can obey God's Word in an attempt to earn something from God. But here we have the person who loves to learn and to know and to obey God's word for the simple reason that it is God's word for the simple reason that he has spoken it and because they possess an immense love and respect for God and they possess the fear of God that deep deep, deep reverence and respect for Him. And yes, we obey His Word because of who He is and the fact that He is worthy of that respect. But the Bible also teaches that we obey His Word in order to express our love for Him. Because when a person loves God, we're constantly on the search for a way To express that in a meaningful way to him. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And all of that is bound up in this passage that we're studying. Jesus taught this very thing in the New Testament. This very idea of God looking for a place of peace and rest in a human heart. Wanting to make uh, our hearts his home he declared this very thing that isaiah is declaring in john chapter 14 verse 23 when jesus said if anyone loves me he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and we will make our home with him and the old king james it declares and we will make our abode with him And in the literal Greek translation of the Old King James, what Jesus is saying is when someone loves me, when someone loves the Father, when someone expresses that great love for God in the obedience of their life, then God will be able to make his, settle down and make himself at home in that heart. He can make himself comfortable. And that kind of heart and then bring into that heart the fullness of himself and of his pleasure and of his of his presence. Simple obedience to God's word accomplishes many, many wonderful things within our lives. But I'll tell you chief among them being that it creates a wonderful environment in my heart for God's dwelling inside of me. And again, the experiencing of His peace and of His pleasure. Now allow me to close with one final observation and one final encouragement. I think it's important to realize that this kind of a heart, even among God's people, is perhaps not, perhaps not so common as we might think that it is. And only God knows How present it is within his people. In Isaiah's day, it was clearly very, very rare. And God declared concerning the vast majority of his people that because they were not, there wasn't this heart reality toward God behind their sacrifices. He said in verses 3 and 4 that These sacrifices that they were bringing, they weren't sacrificing animals. He said, you were murdering them. In other words, the death of every animal that you're sacrificing to me, it's an out-and-out murder of them. It's the shedding of innocent blood for no good. It's Their death is meaningless. Their death is useless. The offering of a dog or a pig or murder, the worship of idols, all of these things forbidden by God. Their heartless, hypocritical worship was worse, God said, than no worship at all. He said, it's an abomination to me. He said, it's an affront to God. Of professing Christianity at the end of the age, immediately before the rapture of the church, the Bible declares that instead of a poor and contrite spirit, there will be the dominant spirit of the church of Laodicea, Where the people ruled. I read a passage from it earlier. Let me read another passage from it in Revelation chapter 3 verse 17. And Jesus speaking to it. He said because you say I am rich and to become wealthy and have need of nothing. And do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind and naked. There won't be the poverty of spirit. There won't be the contriteness of heart. And instead of this vast, uninterrupted sea of trembling at God's word at the end of the age, the Bible teaches that his word is going to increasingly be treated with indifference and rejection and even scorn. Jesus, again, writing to the church at Revel- of Laodicea, he said, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. And so then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Paul wrote to Timothy, and he said, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, And they will turn away their ears from the truth and be turned aside to fables. And yet of the church of Philadelphia in the book of Revelation, the church which holds on to what is described here in verse 2 of Isaiah chapter 66, all the way through the indifference of the age and the indifference so often not only of the world toward God's word, but even his own people toward his word, God declared concerning that church, a church that will be present in the last days, right up to the time of Jesus' return. And Jesus said concerning them, described them and said, I know your work. See, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength. You are small in stature, literally, and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Now, you may ask yourself, why in the world do I make mention of this dreary reality? And the reason that I do so is to let us know not to beat you, not to accuse you unnecessarily. That's not the purpose of the sermon at all. If the shoe fits in that regard, then certainly we have to wear it. But that's not my purpose in laying all of this sermon out that's come before this point. I say all of this in order to let us know individually as Christians that that kind of heart, even among God's people, might not be as common as we might think. And then for that realization to make us desire that our heart would be such to God, that they might be, our hearts, a place in which God might rest fully, and that he might be able to make himself at home within. We cannot control the condition of the world. We can't control the condition and the health of the body of Christ as a whole not even in this community, not even in this church, let alone in the whole world. We can't control the spiritual walk or the condition of the heart of even one other Christian besides ourself. All of that is outside of our control. We can only determine the condition of our own heart in this regard. And the Bible teaches that God is a place of rest for us. And what a wonderful source and place of rest he is to us. But I think it is also wonderful to realize that it also teaches that as Christians, our lives are to also be a place of rest for him. And it is an amazing potentiality, an amazing possibility really by offering him a heart that is marked by humility and brokenness and an awe of his word. What a privilege. What a blessing. And to be able to do so in the power of the Holy Spirit, as I studied through the week, this week on this passage, and prepared the sermon and sought the Lord is the normal course of a week for any pastor. My heart was sad, and my heart was broken not because I felt that this passage had some kind of extraordinarily, extraordinary application to Calvary Chapel in Modesto. I don't believe that at all. But I do think, by the Spirit of God, if we could see for ourselves if we could know in this moment in human history the size or the smallness of the number of hearts that represent the heart that is described in verse 2 our hearts might be broken not only for ourselves but be broken for God. Not by the condition of a pagan and unsaved world but by the disrespect that is shown to him by his own people. And I know it's a strong word but maybe it needs to be not only for those of us whose hearts may be very very far from what God describes in verse 2 and you and I need to repent of where we've taken our Christianity and the convenient thing that we've made it rather than the thing that honors and blesses God But maybe this is a message that's important to everyone, even those of you whose heart is described wonderfully by what God describes in verse 2, so that you will realize how rare it can be in the world today and protect it and prize your heart. And by the power of the Holy Spirit to keep it in this place. So that in you, if in no one else, God can find the place of rest that he longs to find in the hearts of his people. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Well, we don't look at the children of Israel and Judah at the time of Isaiah as some extraordinary, unfamiliar kind of people to us. We recognize that each and every one of us are capable of all that they were doing to your heart and more. And we thank you, Lord, out of the pain of the immense disrespect that was shown to you, that you poured out your heart in these closing chapters of the book of Isaiah, that we might recognize that there's another person in this relationship, and that that relationship is you, and that you feel And that you bear the consequences, that you bear the effect of what we bring for good or for bad to that relationship as much as happens in any relationship in life. And Lord, we thank you. We are in awe this morning of the potential of our heart to be a place where you can find rest and peace that it can be a place that you can settle down and make yourself at home in. And the fullness of your presence, the fullness of your beauty and your blessings, Lord, to be brought into our lives as a result, the beauty of the fellowship and the conversation. And we pray for our lives as we stand before you. And if they are in any way, whether by much or by little, some distance away from the heart that you describe here we pray that you would freshly fill us with your Holy Spirit Lord give us the capacity to repent Lord of anything that is clogging and filling our heart and taking up room that belongs solely to you so that we might leave this place today and not leave it until Lord this heart of ours is indeed Your throne, not in word only, but in reality. And Lord, we pray that you would take this passage and the strength of it and that you would use it to speak to us in the remaining days of our pilgrimage until the return of your Son. And this thought of how few there could possibly, potentially be, how heartbreakingly few there might be that constitute this place of rest for you, that we would not allow ourselves to be sucked into what Christianity is currently being defined as all around us and being dumbed down into and all that is being misrepresented, Lord, before the world and even before the church but that we would be, remain free of all of it by your Holy Spirit, not because we're better, but because, Lord, you do it in our lives, that we might be able to lay our heads down on our pillow at the end of the day and to know that our heart was in some small measure this for you, Lord, for your blessing. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.